everybody, Jake Wiskirchen back with you again on the podcast. Yet again, we find ourselves in a position of being very humbled by our listening audience's continued support and listenership, honestly. It's, uh, you know, I said it before, but it's always flattering that when, you know, people listen to this stuff, they share it around, and we encourage you to do that. So, you know, feel free to subscribe. Also, check out our sponsors, namely Zephyr Wellness, which is the company that I co-own in northern Nevada. And specifically, subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm going to start putting out some more content here shortly, and we're going to cover some topics that are unique to the profession, but also are useful for people who just want self-help. I've found that in my experience, teaching the concepts and theories that I learned in grad school helps people to apply them in their own lives. And I'm going to make a concerted effort this coming year to do a lot more of that kind of thing. So maybe speaking it into existence by committing myself verbally to you guys will uh, force me to do it because I've been talking about it for a while, but uh, now I'm actually, I'm actually getting serious. So uh, ZephyrWellness.org, the YouTube channel, the Instagram uh, account for sure, and then Facebook and Twitter, of course, also. And then Audible. Audible has been kind enough to sponsor some of our shows and if you want you can check out audibletrial.com slash noggin notes for a free 30-day trial you get a download with your free 30-day trial that you get to keep even if you cancel the the trial but you probably won't because audible's got such an incredible inventory that you're gonna lose yourself in it i'm sure audibletrial.com slash noggin notes free 30-day trial free audio download and uh, keep it even if you cancel as for this show, I'm interviewing a friend and colleague, Bridget Fernopfel, and her colleague and associate, Molly Halligan. And there are two behaviorists, uh, I guess you could say behavior scientists, if you will. Uh, they work in the realm of helping modify people's behaviors, and specifically with children. But I think a lot of times we have this misunderstanding that behaviorism only equates to autism treatment, and that's not at all true, as you'll discover in our interview. But the gals were super, um, you know, helpful in making this happen. And I'm grateful to their assistance because I wanted to talk about the science of behavior for quite some time. And now we are. So I hope you find it interesting. And like usual, please feel free to share around. Have a wonderful 2021. Happy New Year. Well, today's episode, we are joined by Molly Halligan and Bridget Frenopel. How are you both? Good. How are you? <laughs> don't, don't all speak at once. Um, I know it's a little different. We have uh, a person live in studio, COVID-free, and, uh, and a person on the camera down in Las Vegas, uh, also COVID-free. But uh, Molly's in Vegas, Bridget's up here, and we're going to talk about behaviorism today. I think a lot of people are... Um, interested to know how that discipline functions. So I'll just kick it off and go to, go to Molly. Why don't you, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us, you know, who you are and uh, uh, what hood you rep and that kind of thing. Yeah. So my name's Molly Halligan. I have a master's degree in psychology with an emphasis on behavior analysis. I'm a licensed behavior analyst in the state of Nevada, and I'm also board certified nationally. Um, I work for Central Reach and I also own the Las Vegas Autism Center. Oh, you own it. Okay. Yes. Cool. That I did not realize. I just thought you directed it or managed it, which you do, but I didn't realize you were. Um, I consult with it at this point, but yeah. Good for you. And Bridget, who are you? I am Bridget Fernotful. I'm also a board certified behavior analyst and licensed behavior analyst here in the state of Nevada. I have a doctorate in philosophy with an emphasis on behavior analysis um, with some work in the clinical realm too. So I, the difference is very clear to me. Um, and I currently work at UNR. I am faculty there. I teach courses, supervise students, and a lot of other fun projects on the side as assigned. UNR being the acronym for the University of Nevada, Reno, uh, for people who aren't from the Northern Nevada area. So you got a university professor, we got an agency owner. Both of you are in this uh, field called behaviorism. Uh, let's kick this off by asking, and you guys can just like, I don't know if you want to Rochambeau for it or what, but ask, um, why, why does this field exist? What's its, what's its primary function? 
Bridge, do you want to take that? I was going to offer it to you, but it's funny that <laughs> you're talking about function, right? Because yeah, that's exactly where we would go. Yeah. Um, and so behavior analysis really is the science of behavior. Um, we actually call it behavior analysis, mm-hmm. behaviorism. So, um, but what we look at is really the environment and its impact on behavior, right? So we look at what's going on in the current context and how that's impacting behavior, which really derives and gets us down to the function. Um, and that's where we say why, you know, individuals or folks, children, whoever it is that we're working with, why they do essentially what they do. So are they engaging in problem behavior um, to gain access to an iPad or for attention from their parents? I'm sure everybody's always, I'm assuming everybody has witnessed the child in the candy aisle at the grocery store. It's a perfect example, right? Throwing um, their little fit to gain access to candy. So that's kind of the things that we would be talking about, right? What's going on in that context, what's present in that candy aisle, how is the parent responding or the other individuals that are around that child um, to encourage or sustain that behavior. Of course, we look at other forms of behavior too, not just throwing tantrums in a grocery store, um, which of course we all see. Um, Molly, do you have anything to add? Um, I think that's pretty much sums it up. We work with people in all realms of life because we're looking at what's happening in the natural environment. And I think oftentimes people or folks um, link us to autism, developmental disabilities, that sort of thing. Um, But we actually do have behavior analysts working across many different disciplines um, from NASA. We we have one that consults with NASA. There's a a behavior analyst down at, I'm going to get the term wrong. I think it's the Animal Kingdom or Disney Kingdom, whatever it is in Orlando. Uh, but she actually works on environmental enrichment down there to make the exhibits more exciting for spectators. Um, there are some that work, uh, I'm specifically thinking, Molly, of uh, the guy that works for BP in safety following that, you know, outrageous. Yep. Um, yep. He's in charge of, yeah, he's in charge of helping support uh, safety measures and oil rigs in the middle of the ocean. So kind of a wide spectrum of things um, that we devil in, but. Yeah. I did not unmute myself apparently this is my first time doing this um, actually if you want to move that pop shield out of your way you don't have to have that there you can just yeah just flexes around there you can pull the mic a little closer you i think you were clipping a little bit um <laughs> people are listening they're like what are you doing jake this sound like you've done this before like 150 times why is this hard it's because we have new equipment and um i'm trying to be a professional but actually being very amateurish in my approach uh but that's why we uh we ask our friends in so they're a little more forgiving and to the audience if you're disappointed hey you get what you pay for it's a free podcast uh (laughs) i did not know that all those uh, things existed because i also had linked behaviorism almost exclusively as a profession almost exclusively to children adolescents folks struggling with autism and the intellectually disabled and so i i guess on some level i always thought that people who run corporations and, you know, like need folks that they manage to behave in certain ways would benefit from this. And probably there's some, you know, some infusion of this science that goes into coaching and consultation, that sort of thing. But I never really thought that a career as a board certified behavioral analyst could be working for BP or the zoo. Um, That's really fascinating. And I'd love to hear more about it because if people are listening to this, and I know we have some younger folks in our audience, um, they are thinking about careers in this field. And I think a lot of what they see is talk therapy in the office for sure. But that's like, I don't know, 10% of behavioral health. It's, it's not much because uh, there's, there's medicine and there's, and there's psychology and, and research. And, and now I'm, I'm realizing now that like there could be a real wealth of opportunity helping management, uh, you know, it, get its employees to perform better. So uh, please like dive into that if you would. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that just from a, my own curiosity sake, but also from a listening audience perspective. So that's um, organizational I'll, business management, but I'm going to yeah. defer that one to Molly. Yeah, I definitely am an amateur in that area in that I didn't get specific training outside of our general um, breadth of training at UNR, which I also went to University of Nevada, Reno as well. Um, that's where I got my master's degree. Um, but yeah, OBM is an amazing, uh, uh, branch of behavior analysis and those that practice it do go into different organizations and help set up the organization, the organization set up systems 
so that everything flows better. So it's all it's all based on the systems that you're looking at. So whether it's systems on how to structure your you know computer systems to make your um, your um, employees be able to work effortlessly, effortlessly, or to identify how to um, or set people up to be able to create job descriptions, things like that, to be able to get people to do their jobs well. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, what, what's, can you think of uh, specific roles that someone would do? Like, what, what are you asked to do when you come in? Uh, say you, you're this, you're this behavior analyst person who comes into an organization. What's, what's the task? Is it, is it always well, we, process improvement or? Yeah, I, I, to my knowledge, my friends that do this, like, so um, Shane Isley is a brilliant behavior analyst that work, does OBM work. And actually the Applied Behavior Analysis Board actually con contracted with him to help them set up job descriptions. And I'm not sure if there was other things that they were setting up there. Um, but he has a branch with, I believe, Jennifer Bono that they go through uh, the country and support organizations that primarily are servicing um, individuals that like children with autism and things like that right now. But um, they help them set up their job descriptions, their structures, just uh, their employee, employee um, hierarchy, things like that. So that way uh, organizations can run without any uh, hiccups. And um, another thing that they might work on is maybe reinforcement systems or incentive systems for um, employees, because, you know, we can only pay our employees what we are able to pay them within this industry. Um, and so incentive systems are going to be really valuable. Um, things like that. I don't know, Bridge, do you have anything to add to that? Oh, I'm glad you brought up the reinforcement because I was going to talk about that too. She just was, she was nodding morale. vigorously. Yeah. Um, but really focusing on um, job satisfaction and morale and those systems are set up too. You know, that's one of the, what we would call like an output, right? Something that's coming out of that system is positive work environment. So they really focus heavily on that too. So uh, those jackets that I had embroidered for the Zephyr employees for Christmas presents, that, that's a good thing. Well, as long as they find them reinforcing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, if they exactly. find them off-putting, maybe, maybe they don't want to come back the next, the next year. Um, what what are some things if, if people are listening, they're like, oh, I, I have an organization. I don't know if I can hire somebody necessarily and put them on payroll to come consult. What are some quick tips and strategies that might be those positive behavioral reinforcers, if I'm using the terminology correctly, that they might implement that maybe they didn't think of that, you know, if you don't have a full-blown HR department or, you know, you lack the resources for the full full consultation, you know, what are some some tips and hints to help people work better and make earth go around a little smoother? Um, I think for my perspective, it, the first step is to make sure that your organization is set up in an organized fashion so that everybody knows what their jobs are and what their expectations are. And that should be in writing and everybody should be made aware of those things. Um, so kind of business 101 for a lot of people, but that's what it comes down to. And it's very detailed. And then once that is clear, so all those job expectations are clear, everybody knows what to expect from everybody around them. Then you could do things like reinforcer surveys. You can ensure that you are rewarding your staff um, or your employees. You can you know, put incentives in place to ensure that they are rewarding each other. Um, but you really want to make sure that you're getting as much input from your staff as possible. So it shouldn't be a manager coming in and, you know, like your example with the jackets. Yeah, those might be a great idea, but you have no idea. Maybe somebody has a million jackets and they hate wearing them in the winter. Um, so you want to make sure that somebody comes in and actually gets the input from the people that they're trying to deliver reinforcers to. to make, make sure they're functional. Buyer's remorse here, Molly. But thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I joked with Lindsay, uh, my our co-owner here at Zephyr. I joked with her uh, yesterday, actually, um, about some something that went down, and I, I we were texting back and forth, and I said, "Hey, look at that! It almost looks like we know what we're doing running a business. It only took us six years, and and it was half tongue in cheek. But to your point about the organizational, like the flow chart and the and the job descriptions, like we just didn't have that for the first couple of years. We had it, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't good." And it didn't mean much. And, and she and I were role conflicted a lot, you know, just kind of stepping in each other's 
turf. And, and unfortunately that sends mixed signals to the employees, right? They're like, okay, so we know that Lindsay runs op and ops and Jake does clinical, but I have a question that sort of doesn't fall into either camp. Who do I go to? And it, and it became this weird, uh, hierarchical, uh, structural deficiency that we have since solved, which is nice, but it took some time. It was really hard. Well, and from a business owner, especially a small business, um, it's really difficult to get those things done because those things don't necessarily make you money right away. And then you start to grow. And the more you grow, the more confusion it creates. And that's where job dissatisfaction comes into place because people are confused about their job responsibilities and then, you know, the employer or the manager is upset with people for not doing their jobs and it becomes a mess. Yeah, it was, it, it truly was. And um, now it's not anymore. The last couple of years, we've really gotten it rolling, but whew, it was, it was not easy. And you, you just, I mean, you basically just described what happened with our organization. So, you know, thankfully we continued forward and it didn't consume us and collapse us, but yeah, those, those, those micro details uh, really do matter. They, they do. And it, and it takes time. I think that's why a lot of people don't own their own businesses. And I think too, going back, even um, if we get a little bit away from like the business, you know, setup and perspective, but taking in some of the clinical skills that we know and applying those, we're really good at applying those with our clients, but we forget to do that with our employees. Right. And by employees, I mean, I can specifically talk about my supervisees because that's kind of where I'm functioning, but really making sure that we are functioning as a reinforcer for them, that we've established rapport. Um, and again, like linking those reinforcers to their job performance specifically. So you, oh, look, you just did this and being very specific about, you know, providing that specific praise for their performance on those things. Um, and then, you know, just other clinical things like you talking about the jackets. So what we would do is a preference assessment, right? I mean, we do that with clients. What will, what do you want to work for? Or, you know, the little guys that we're working with, do you want the Oreo or do you want the Cheeto? So do you want the sweatshirt or do you want the hat? Right. So kind of, you know, remembering to use those skills that are so ingrained in us as clinicians and applying them to our employees too, because oftentimes we, you know, or supervisees, we forget about them. We lose the sight. We, we do. And, and there's a, there's a phrase, two phrases really describe the same thing, parallel process and isomorphism from uh, s- systems training. Parallel process loosely is uh, whatever's happening in your client's life sometimes manifests itself in the session and vice versa. Uh, so if the client is uh, really struggling at home with the spouse, uh, it'll present as a struggle with the clinician and in isomorphism to, you know, to, to use a fancier term is when it happens in supervision, allegedly. It's the same thing. Um, but we want to be mindful that we're, we're really just being consistent, too, because the, the same struggles that can pop up in a clinical setting can pop up in a personal setting can pop up in a in a parent child setting and and I love that you you know, you, you mentioned like you know get a survey done see what they want first and all I'm thinking is like but then it won't be a surprise <laughs> it takes the romance and the excitement out of it uh, but you get happiness and I, and I think when you when you are transparent and you invite people to collaborate in the process in getting whatever it is that they want and you offer many options, the closer you get to what it is that they want with as many options as possible, the happier you're going to end up being. And then who cares about the romance at that point? You've, you've gotten joy, right? Cause you got what you wanted. Um, and I'm hearing some parallels too. And I want to hear you talk about this with uh, between what we do with children to shape behavior and what we do with adults to shape behavior and even organizations uh, and even governmental structures, right? So what are some, some of the fundamental I guess, tools or strategies or philosophies that, that are universal in, in those applications. Molly's smiling. You can't see that because you're staring at the back of the screen. <laughs> like the back. Um, yeah. Well, we could go through the basics. Reinforcement um, is the best one that everybody likes to talk about. Now I can't see you guys anymore. Um, That's because I really bumped the camera and turned it off. Yeah. So every, every, organism contacts reinforcement right bridge can you see me now i can um punishment exists in the natural environment as well and you know punishment happens whether it's intentional or not things that look like punishers to one person might not be a punisher to another and vice versa and 
things that look like reinforcers to one person might not be, might actually function as a punisher to another person. So that's where those, you know, the surveys we were talking about are really important when we're working with individuals, whether they're children or adults, we conduct preference assessments frequently. And so for individuals that might not be able to speak, we uh, set the occasion so they're likely to indicate in some other way that they're interested in whatever the object or activity is um, with, you know, uh, individuals in the workspace. They can answer a survey, they can do it in person, they could tell you, they could do it anonymously. We actually use a, a tool frequently, um, uh, I think it's called Office Vibe. It's a free survey tool for uh, organizations where our staff are regularly telling us things and it asks random questions. So they get, it, it kind of takes a, um, a temperature check on how they feel about things. And then we could throw in some questions sometimes. Um, so we're able to identify what, if what we're doing is, and we think are delivering, the reinforcers we think we're delivering are actually functioning as such in that way. Are those anonymous? Yes, they are anonymous. Hmm. And I think when you I could actually, re go ahead, Molly. Oh, I was just going to say, just to give another little plug for that thing, you can respond and communicate with the individual comments and the individual can continue to uh, respond anonymously if you if they choose to. And what's the pretty call? cool? Office vibe. Oh. You could pay for it depending on the number of employees you have, but there is a free part portion of the service. That's cool. I think mm -hmm. one of the important principles that Molly just pointed out to really is that reinforcement, right? And so establishing that what we call motivation or that motivating operation. Um, and that's really the importance of these preference assessments, right? Because we could have the perfect treatment plan or the perfect behavior plan. But if that client, child, individual, whoever it is that we're working with isn't motivated, it's going to fail. Sure. Right. And so making sure and ensuring with, you know, um, that process and that procedure that we've got something that's going to motivate them for change, essentially, is what we're talking about. Change in behavior um, is vital. There's a lot of stuff I want to cover. But uh, for right now, I think I just want to hover right where you are, which is on the um, uh, motivation component. So often we see parents bring their children into treatment and it's like, here, fix my kid. And that doesn't work. We know that systemically it doesn't work. We have to, we have to get the parents on board because they, as the executives of their home, you know, as they go, so go the children. So there's no fix my kid. We don't treat individuals in a vacuum. That's not how this works. But secondly, the kid doesn't know why they're there. And, and oftentimes we, as the adult clinicians in their life can be viewed as yet another person telling them what to do and how to do it. How do you work through both those things when your realm, as opposed to my realm, if I can separate them a little bit, yours is so much more sciencey than ours, which is, tends to operate in the theoretical realm. Um, you know, it seems like it would advertise itself well to parents to be like, okay, you guys can fix my kid. You're the behaviorist, just, just shape their behavior. Uh, and that's not, we know that's not how it works. How do you, how do you help train parents to understand that? Well, I won't speak to the parent training necessarily at this point, but the, the way as a therapist you start would be to gain the learner's consent or assent, not consent, because those are two different things, um, but gain their, their assent to being there with you and to interacting with you and to developing a trusting relationship. And for each individual, that's going to look very different. I have my favorite little guy that had autism, um, he, he, I shouldn't say he's my favorite uh, client, but this piece was my favorite thing because I'd never seen it this exaggerated before. When we would work with him, he um, would just avoid anything that had to do with us. So we'd walk into a room and he'd be playing with the toy and we'd sit next to him and he would take the toy away. So if you followed him and tried to touch the toy, he'd drop the toy and move on to something else. His favorite candy, his favorite cookie, he'd keep moving on and moving on. So what we realized is we just had to sit there and wait for him to approach us. And it took for what felt like forever, but we got that ascent. Once we were able to get that, we were able to get to know who he was as an individual um, and then be able to uh, imp implement our treatment plan. But we had to be able to, to get his ascent. Sorry, if you hear a kid screaming in the background, that's my three-year-old. Um, but once he started to give us give us ascent, we were able to identify what his reinforcers were because he was showing us those things. Then when it comes to the parents though, you have to kind of get them to be there too. They have to be willing to let their child tell them what they like instead of only directing their child on what they should be doing and shouldn't be doing. Um, and it's a shaping process. It takes, it could take a long time. It could take a day. It really just depends on the dynamics with each individual and their family. 
couple things I'm really happy to hear you say is uh, all of that uh, because it aligns, but also uh, that your child is screaming in the background because if we were at my house, the same thing would probably be happening. <laughs> it's like you should get a clinician in there to solve that. <laughs> totally kidding. I agree with Molly. And I think in terms of like the parent perspective, what I have found um, probably most effective clinically speaking is to really find you know, what's of value to them in terms of change. Well, of course you've got that whole rapport building piece, right? So you're going to try to establish rapport and, you know, and I think oftentimes it, it may be different for us because our interventions are implemented in the home. So it's not, oftentimes individuals aren't coming to us. We're either working with these children in their homes or in the school setting or wherever it may be that we're employing these. It's I've, not office. I did not know that. I thought that was the exception to the rule. There are centers as well, um, but there's a huge component of, you know, generalization and maintenance in those home and, you know, other environmental settings. So we can see that expansion of the skills. And so we, it is a little bit more intimate, obviously, because we're entering into those environments and those settings, but it also allows us more time with, I I mean, speaking, whether it's a teacher we're training or a parent, um, it allows us more time to actually establish that rapport and work with them in that specific setting. And I think that's, you know, it's really effective. Um, but then again, going back to the values, you know, trying to put yourself into their worldview and find things that are of value to them. I mean, of course, oftentimes, and I'm sure Molly could say this too, we get this lengthy list of things, right. That is wrong with this child or target behaviors. And so really just what I do is find the one that's the most frequent and probably the easiest to target and do that because that can sell the science to that teacher or to that parent much more quickly. Uh, and then they start to kind of buy into, you know, to the treatment and what we're doing and they become that much more engaged. And so that's kind of, you know, the Avenue I've gone, um, typically, you know, parents will get, Oh, toileting, eating, sleeping. Those things are really difficult, right? My child doesn't speak those sorts of things, things that they really have control over. But if there's something in there, you know, just following simple directions, well, how about we work on this? And then they see it and they see the change and then we can easily bleed into those other, you know, more difficult realms. I don't think we like to think of ourselves as salespeople, but there is a sales component to this where you, wherein you want to, or you want to invite them back by showing them the proof and, and also enticing them with, well, there's more to come, you know, cause I think a lot of times people will come into, I don't know about a lot, but sometimes people come into therapy of any kind and they don't get instant results. Cause we live in this like, pill driven instant gratification society. And, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't solve the screaming in one session, then I'm not going to come back. So we want to, we want to invite them back in with, Hey, there's more to this, right? Not just, Hey, be patient. (laughs) I think that's one of the caveats that I always use. I don't know if you do this Molly, but um, with every teacher, every parent I work with, I, that first session is always, there's a warning this is going to get worse before it gets better. So you just got to prepare yourself for that and be ready to ride out that wave um, to kind of just kind of help, you know, fight that magic overnight magic wand. Sometimes it does happen, right? Sometimes that magic fairy does, sure, does yeah. pop up and we do see like really great behavior change really quickly. Um, but often we have to prepare them to kind of ride out that because we're changing the environment. We're changing things and kids will go back, kids, adults, whoever, again, once it is we're working with, we'll go back to those behaviors that were more functional for them in the past. And they will try every single thing to make sure that again, like going back to your point of consistency, that we're going to consistently implement that intervention. And then we'll see that, you know, performance change. Yeah. My good friend and mentor, uh, Christian Conti has the the four C's of parenting. He calls them as choices, consequences, consistency, and compassion. Um, and I always want to add a fifth C, which is credibility. Cause if you don't have consistency, you, you lose credibility and then the kids don't listen. Mm-hmm. But, um, he says, he says, oh, you know, I'll talk to people and they'll say, yeah, we tried that consistency stuff. It didn't work. He's like, well, if you tried it and quit, that was not consistent. <laughs> so there's a real buy-in here where we're, we almost have to sell people on the idea that like, this isn't a, this isn't a one-time wrench torque. It's like, this is a lifestyle change. Now you have to embrace the idea of you know, shifting your behaviors away from everything that you thought you knew, including stuff that you maybe grew up with. So there may be, we may be undoing 30 years worth of habit here um, just yeah. to help get, get kids, uh, you know, aligned. What were you going to say, Molly? No, I was totally agreeing with you. And one other piece, and this isn't always effective and in, in, not, not that it's not effective, but it doesn't always happen is I really try to get my parents to take data. 
on whatever the behavior is. And I say this doesn't always happen because sometimes it's just too hard for the individuals, the parents. But if they start to track their, the data themselves, the behaviors themselves, and they start to see that difference, even those, those minuscule differences, they could, that, that gets buy-in. Like, okay, my kid was screaming 20 times every day. Now, maybe I hear it five times. It's still aversive, it still happens, but it's not as bad. Um, and I think seeing that slight change is really important too. It's super important. Uh, and we don't do that enough in my you know, clinical realm, the, the, the talk therapy uh, profession. We, we don't ask people to track their behaviors often enough. And I, and I think we should, because I, look, every, every part of the world is going to data-driven decision-making. Um, and I'll just use sports because sports is near and dear to my heart. And I played baseball my whole life. And you can, you can work on your swing in the off season, but without that batting average, now we've got advanced metrics on everything. Like, you know, balls hit in play and likelihood of making it out and all that stuff. Like if you don't have something observable, what ends up taking over is confirmation bias. You can hit a couple of balls really, really hard and think that you're doing well, but your batting average is dropping, <laughs> right? Cause you're not, you're not connecting often enough. And same thing with, with behavioral change in children. If you're screaming 20 times a day, and you drop down to 10, it still sounds like a lot of screaming. And so it, it can appear as though nothing has changed. So you need that quantifiable metric to help drive that home. And, and that's a logic exercise. And when people are in, you know, in full limbic brain, you know, in the emotional states, because, you know, their world is upside down or whatever, it's really hard to sit down with a pencil and paper and start tracking behaviors. Uh, so it's, it, I get why it's difficult, uh, but it's really necessary too. It also sterilizes the process of parenting too. I think if people don't want to do that, they're like, or I'm just, you know, like I'm turning my kid into a robot or I'm turning myself into a robot. And that's not true. Right. And I, I think one of the other really, it's important- absolutely not true. Yeah. It's a, yeah. One Go of the it, other important things is, um, it, and again, I do a lot of work in the school. So specific to whatever context we're talking about is really uh, what we call the ratio. This is just one of the basic, simple things that we can do. Um, and so what we really want to see, and it's hard, it makes you, it's hard. Believe me, I'm a parent. I get it. It's really difficult, but we want to hear um, whoever it is that we're working with be praised, what we call like very behavior specific praise at least five times for every one time that you are redirecting them essentially. Right. So, um, you know, Johnny's not putting on his shoes. We're, we're saying, Johnny, you know, put on your shoes, put on your shoes. So we said that twice. So he needs to be praised 10 times to equate those two things. And the whole point is we want to catch them being good much more often than we're catching them engaging in these behaviors that we really don't want to see. Right. Um, and again, it makes you feel like you're beating a dead horse that you're a broken record. Um, and you know, we hear that feedback often, but that's one of the easiest things you can do to see behavior change just across the board, right? Just a basic universal, universal intervention. Um, and it's amazing how quickly, you know, performance will shift for those children that, you know, do find that attention reinforcing. And it doesn't have to be good job, good job, good job. In fact, that's weird. You know, people get really turned off by that because it doesn't make sense. But, you know, that example of Johnny put your shoes on or you didn't put your shoes on the right way. Well, okay, Johnny, now you're standing still. Thanks. And they're doing something that they would have been doing anyway. You catch them in the moment and then you talk to them about that or you deliver a little bit of a a pat. Well, I guess in schools, you're not allowed to really do a pat on the back, but different things that they're already doing. Um, so it's not effortful for the teacher or the parent. Um, interestingly enough, I had a parent conversation recently where the mom was like, well, what am I supposed to do to get my kid to do his chores? Buy him a million things to re- reinforce what, when he does the thing he has to do anyway. I can't afford that. And um, so we had a conversation about shifting the contingencies in her, their environment. So what does he like to do at home? What does he already do? okay, well, maybe he can only do that contingent on whether or not he made his bed or whether or not he got dressed or whether or not he brushed his teeth. And these are all things that when you get down to like the basics, parents will say, well, that's just parenting sometimes because that's what behavior analysis is. We're just shifting what's already happening in the environment in a way to produce the best out of everybody that we possibly can. I'm really glad you said that because I think sometimes this comes off as woo woo or super soft or whatever it is that you know oh you're just gonna like praise your kids you need a hard line discipline with your children it's like no what you need is to recognize what's going on and help them understand that what they're doing is either effective or not effective in getting what they want 
And if we're not willing to reinforce that with delivery, which is the consistency component of those consequences and consequences isn't always bad. It can be good. I mean, the consequence for doing your homework is good grades and graduation. Um, but I think we've, we've labeled it as being negative. Um, when we do that, what we're doing is we're really teaching them and, and kids are walking the earth for the first time, right? And somebody, somebody's got to teach them this stuff. We can't, we can't expect them just to perform because they look like little human beings. Um, someone has to instruct them and that, that someone is us. And we have to be aware that if we're not doing it, somebody else will be. And if we want it done the right way, our way, we need to step up and we need to set emotion aside and we need to align our expectations with that reality and really help our children, you know, and understanding this behavioral functioning, I think is critical. Um, what, what's the currency? What do kids like? What's the buy-in? What do they not like? And leverage those things appropriately. Um, I'm going to say it, Molly, it's going to make us sound really bad, but, um, you know, some of our, you know, if we go back and think about some of, you know, the grandfathers of behavior analysis, when they really want to stress a point, what they, they'll say, we, the rat is never wrong, right? Because the behavior analysis really all stemmed out of, you know, a lot of animal research and things like that. We saw a lot of these contingencies, Skinner box, the Skinner box. Yes. Coming into play in those um, environments. And the point is children aren't rats. Our clients aren't rats, but we are the only ones that are controlling that environment that that rat is in. Right. And so as the adults, that's, on us, you know, right. the child is responding to what is present in the environment. And so it's up to us to arrange, like Molly's saying, those contingencies for them to have those positive outcomes. So how often do you run into parents who had an inconsistent upbringing of their own, and now they're trying to parent a child and the child seems to be running the home? How do you, how do you work with that? I'm married to one, <laughs> um, you know, right. And so that's even more frustrating. Um, but it, it, again, is really trying to give that direct, immediate feedback to the parents. Molly, you can probably speak to this as well. Um, and the, Are you married to one too? I think I'm the one, actually. My oh. husband's <laughs> the one that's consistent. Yeah. Um, behavior analysts aren't perfect. But, you know, yeah. really trying to give that immediate feedback to the, to the parents in the, you know, in the setting. And when it happens is utterly important, right? Um, and then teaching them how to recognize, you know, the reaction of their child or what their child's doing. And, um you know, kind of recognize how, how that happened. And we call it the ABCs. So really like outlining what happened before my kid did this. And then what did I do after? So really they can start to analyze, you know, that entire contingency and start manipulating things themselves. I'm still working on husband with that. So. Yeah. Well, and another thing um, back to the data collection, sometimes like hardcore data, like, you know, check it happened, check minus it did or whatever. It's too much. So sometimes just journaling. So if you have a child that maybe is frequently tantruming all morning long and it's a typical kid and you don't understand what's happening, but it ruins the morning and it drags the whole thing out. Um, maybe the parent can start journaling about what went on the night before. Did they eat dinner? Did they go to bed at a reasonable time? Did they stay up and watch video games or play or play video games all night? Did they get up in the morning and get right on the iPad? All of those little things so they could start to see what was happening beforehand. And yes, it is environmental, but also there are going to be some physiological things that are happening that's out of our realm, but we want to make sure we're aware of those things and going to the proper sources to get insight on those things like medical doctors, um, OTPT, whoever else. Um, to structure the environment so that they're likely to be more successful. Well, and, and speaking of physiology, I mean, uh, fatigue and hunger, uh, cold, hot, you know, like the, those affect us in ways that we, I mean, profound ways that we don't pay enough attention to. I think, uh, uh, why do adults get into arguments, you know, around dinner time when the, you know, you're in the kitchen trying to make something because you're hungry, <laughs> you know? And so if you got kids screaming and, you know, they're snacking on things like don't eat so much, you're going to ruin your meal. It's like, well, why am I angry? Oh, I myself probably should have a snack or a beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look like you're going to jump in. Oh, no, I'm, I'm just that you're exactly right. And, the, and there's a lot of literature actually that, you know, demonstrates how some of those physiological conditions will actually either escalate or, you know, lead to an increase in problem behavior and mm. the clients that we're working with, um, constipation for one, right. Kids oh, don't void for a number of days and you will see like a significant increase in problem behavior. So being very aware of those things. And of course, again, in that instance, perfect behavior plan is not going to be effective, right? Because that's a physiological thing that we need to go re- refer out for and, um, let the medical doctors handle that. And lo and behold, right. Johnny's better. So, um, yeah, keeping in mind all those various things. It's always Johnny, Johnny or Timmy and Susie. 
Yeah. yeah. I usually do Johnny. Johnny. I do Johnny too. I, I blame Johnny. <laughs> going back to the parenting though, if you've got a parent who's, um, their, their parenting skills are say absent. Uh, they only know what they were raised with and they were raised very poorly. Um, they're, they're functional, you know, whatever they're, they're nice people, but they just don't have an understanding. Um, or you, you've got a parent who just, you know, has some decent instincts, but they don't have a parenting philosophy. There's no intention behind why they do it. Um, how's the conversation work with regard to, Hey, actually it's not your kid. It's you you know, the long-term and not to assign blame, that's not why yeah. I'm going with this, but, but the long-term sustainable outcome is going to pivot on you, not your kid. I'm only here for a time limited appearance, you know, and in that time, I'd, I'd rather actually teach you this stuff. So you don't become dependent upon people coming into your home, working with your kid. How does that go? I think that's where a lot of that solution focused therapy comes in, you know, where you, you really are learning to frame it in their worldview and using their language. And, uh, it's a, it's a good clinical skill to have. Sometimes it's difficult to develop where I often like to start is just like the basic thing. So how, how are you delivering an instruction, right? How are we, Mm -hmm. how are we identifying these things? Um, do you have their eye contact? Have you minimized distractions in the house? And this applies to any child, not even a child with disabilities, right? Because again, Johnny could be over playing video games and his dad is telling him to, you know, again, put his shoes on, right? Well, he's playing a video game. So one, we don't even know if you, he heard he's you. Distracted, yeah. It's not his fault. Right. And so, um, so kind of following, you know, this systematic way of ensuring that they you've delivered that instruction effectively. Um, and then also, you know, one of the other big pieces is, um, is that even worth the battle, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's something that parents need to stop themselves, teachers too, um, in the minute or in the moment and say, like, if, if this comes out of my mouth, am I willing to follow through? Right. Because if you don't follow through, then you can, you've just given them an inch and they're going to take a mile, yeah. right? You're not consistent. So kind of identifying and, and working through just some of those basic steps first and then moving on from there. Um, I agree. And then the next piece that I do, some, depending on the parent, sometimes I do this simultaneously is I try to find that one little thing that we can make easy change with if that exists and use that database decision-making with that and show them that data and work on, okay, so this is how you did this. And this is what happened. You changed your behavior and you, and then you got this outcome and show them those differences. And the best way to, for me, at least the best thing I've seen is when they're collecting their own data and they're aware of their own behavior and then they're seeing the difference. And when they fall off, letting them know, like, you're gonna, you're gonna be inconsistent. This is likely gonna happen and it's okay. Because I think that's also very important um, when the pressure's there to, you know, they've learned how to, this tool to get the better outcome. And now the pressure's there to make sure they're always consistent. And this is, again, something maybe they haven't done in 30 years of their lives. Um, letting them, giving them grace and get, and, uh, letting them know and setting that precedence that they should give themselves grace for that. Otherwise, I think that the um, trust gets breached a little bit. And so you're less likely to get honest data from them and honest information. Yeah. It, it, sending the message that you didn't get here overnight and it won't get undone overnight is really key you know, to be patient and give yourself a nice long leash um, and, and be gracious. And I, I, I like that you said all those things. Um, I think a lot of times parents are super hard on themselves because there's, we do this comparison, right. on social media and, and broadly in culture and society, we're all looking over each other's fences to see whose kid is doing what. And, and if, if we have a belief in our head that our kid isn't doing the quote unquote proper thing or whatever, then we can start to get into a self-shaming cycle, which really is not helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think too, something that's probably worth being mindful of is that it's pretty hard to break a kid. Like they, they, they're really resilient. And, um, this isn't, this doesn't need to be this sterilized scientific experiment. Um, you know, flow matters and things like instinct and, and just common sense. You know, like if you're yelling at your kid and he's crying, it's probably not working, maybe shift strategies. Uh, and then you yourself can examine why you're yelling at your child, which goes back to something I wanted to bring up from, from earlier when we mentioned the difference between, um, uh, punishment and reward, I think is, is, was the word, was it punishment? Reinforcement. Reinforcement. Yeah. yeah. So um, there's a confusion, I think, in broader parenting circles that uh, discipline has to be this fierce, uh, almost violent act. Like I'm disciplining you with, as I whack them with the belt. 
And I want to clarify the difference. I don't want to use my definition. I want to hear you two talk about it. The difference between punishment and discipline. Um, well, punishment is a technical term in our world where a reinforcer is withheld following the behavior. That's the technical type of the jargon of it. Um, and it leads to a decrease of prob the probability of that behavior occurring again. But it's very problematic. The individual that contacts that punishment is likely to not engage in that behavior in the presence of the punisher. So sorry if I'm too jargony here, but the person that smacked him, if the, if the smack is a punishment, they're gonna not engage in that behavior in front of that, with that person. But when that person's not there, they're probably gonna engage in that behavior or something similar to contact whatever it was that they were gonna get by that original behavior. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't teach anything else. It's not, it's missing that component. For discipline, I mean, I don't know, how would you define discipline? I don't think I really, I don't use that terminology necessarily with my, my clients. I try to stick with reinforcement and punishment so they can under, identify right. what the differences are. Um, but this, Bridge, what would you say about that? Oh, I was, go ahead, Bridget. I don't use it either. I use uh, reinforcement and punishment. Yeah, for the points that Molly made. For uh, My understanding of discipline is it's got its roots in the re Greek word of disciple, which means to teach. So if you're disciplining someone, okay. you're literally teaching them. Uh, and I don't know that there's a lot of education that goes into uh, striking a child, for example, or, um, you know, re removing the, like you said, the reinforcer, uh, that there's no, there's no education there. This, if there is, it's, you just told them that you're untrustworthy. So I think where we would go with that is probably the use of differential reinforcement, which again, it's another jargony term, right? Very jargony. Um, we, yeah, behavior analysis is full of it, but um, in that procedure is basically, we are going to, uh, there's, there's two, you know, sh sh roads operating essentially at the same time. So on this road, we're delivering reinforcement, right? Where we have selected, uh, and this is where probably, you know, discipline teaching, if we're teaching something, right? If that's the hope, um, we are going to identify an alternative form of behavior that's more appropriate that will still enable that child to gain access to whatever it was that they were you know, trying to get by engaging in this behavior. So for example, with the um, punishment, if they were trying to get dad's attention, right? So they did something, they get dad's attention. He spanks them. That's what we're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Attention followed mm -hmm. that. We would teach them to maybe go, I don't know, just for lack of a better example, you know, tap dad on the shoulder and say, hey, dad, come play with me, right? So then they're going to get his attention and his, you know, full undivided attention there. The other path is we are ignoring everything that we don't want to attend and, or, you know, reinforce or attend to. So, and that basically extinction. So we're running two different things. We're going to only attend to this and we're no longer attending to this. I mean, of course there's caps on that, right? Because of ethics and safety right, and things, right. things of that nature. But for just like basic examples, we're no longer going to attend to Johnny, you know, screaming and yelling to get, or hitting his siblings to get dad's attention. We're going to do it this way. Um, and so that's, that's probably the procedure that we would recommend. Yeah. And I think sometimes that procedure, even though it's highly effective, gets a little murky in the, the real world with parenting, you know, Johnny screaming in the car when we're driving a two hour on a two hour drive, it's going to be really tough for a parent to ignore that. Right. Um, and it's going to be even more difficult when Johnny's sister is yelling at Johnny to stop too. Right. So sometimes there's other, the there's over. <laughs> right. right. Um, and sometimes there's other things we have to add into those procedures, like, you know, setting up expectations, setting up really powerful antecedents, things like that. But knowing, you know, when you're in the moment, you have to ignore that thing that you're choosing to ignore, or you're going to likely put it, you know, make it more powerful, make it something that's more of a powerful tool for that individual. Um, but that's also part of the clinician skill set to identify will this work at this time for this family? And if it doesn't, let's figure something else out. Yeah, I, I can see like highly emotionally charged families who are uh, prone to chaos. You, it would be very hard to introduce a concept like extinction because they're so yeah. emotionally reactive to to whatever the, the stimulus is that it's very hard to, to approach it logically and to, to, to turn that off. So emotional non-attachment is key. If you're going to extinguish a behavior, you just, you got to look at it like it's an entry in a book. <laughs> it's, it's unpleasant 
but even that is a judgment upon what it is. I mean, maybe it's just a thing. Yeah. Eh, screaming. And it's not easy, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, well, and one other thing I just want to add to this to ensure that this is clear, if that's happening, if, if there's ever a moment where I tell anybody, you know, ignore whatever this is, ignore this behavior, whatever the behavior is. Um, I, before I introduce that, I make sure I can give them a list of things that the learner is going to do appropriately, that they're going to reinforce likely before that problem behavior of the screaming, for example, happens. So if every time Johnny gets in the car, he's screaming because he wants a particular toy or he wants some toys, but he's likely to drop them. Okay. Let's get him a tray to sit with. So that way those toys are going to be available for him or let's get him a a bucket that he'll be close to so he can keep accessing things when I'm driving and I can't help him. Let's set it up so that there's going to be a million other things and as many other opportunities available for him to have a good time. So the screaming doesn't occur if that's the function of it. And and what I'm hearing too, because you mentioned the word earlier antecedent, uh, I'm I'm guessing that's the the thing that precedes the, the thing. So in this case, it would be inviting Johnny to make a choice it's Timmy this time, inviting Timmy to, to make okay, a choice Timmy. about which toys he wants to bring and leave behind. So it empowers him to have a voice in his own decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that an antecedent? Yeah. Well, okay. it's an antecedent intervention. We would okay. call it like op- choice yeah. making, offering choices. Right. Yeah. But I mean, you, we all have children here. Um, I don't want my kids to have to listen to somebody blindly. They don't, I don't even want them listening to me blindly, even though some days I regret saying those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to make their own choices. That's how they become, you know, functioning adults and contribute to society later on. So as parents and as clinicians, it's really important to instill that in our, our clients and the families of those clients. Like we want this to be their choice. If it's not their choice, I don't know if I lost you, sorry. If it's not their choice, what are we teaching them? If they're only doing it because you're there. How do you balance that? How do you balance that against uh, just respect for authority? You're not challenging everything all the time because some of us who bear a striking resemblance to myself and sound a lot like me and maybe sitting in this room right now have lost many, many jobs because I ignorantly and innocently questioned processes without knowing that I was inadvertently challenging authority. And they're like, yep, sorry, you're gone because you threatened my existence as manager or whatever. How do you, how do you balance? Well, that might've been a technique portion on your part. Lack of diplomacy. I don't know, but. It wasn't until yeah. much later in life and I was like, oh, whoa, I was really offending people by simply asking, why do we do things this way at this company? Um, and, you know, granted, they didn't have the ego strength to, to hold that space for me and correct me. Some bosses did and they were very good, others not. But it was because my parents trained me well, like what you're describing is like to, yeah. to question things. Um, and I got mocked for it in school too. I asked in trigonometry, why was zero, zero? Like why, why zero? Why did we pick that to be the zero? And they were like, what do you, what do you got a hole in your head, kid? Move on with the lesson. But how do we do that? How do we just balance like, Hey, no one, no one when to shut up and just take the lesson versus, you know, raising your hand. And I, I think at the elementary stages of it all, you, uh, you honor that this is a respect. It's a respectful, um, relationship on both ways that goes both ways so I want my I want my children to ask those questions in fact if they're not asking those questions I'm gonna have a problem with that Mm -hmm. but I want them to learn how to do that in a safe environment in a safe space that in our home is a little bit more contrived and controlled that I can give them feedback on how they're doing those things if that's what you mean Um, but it has to be mutual and I want all of my clients and all of my um, parents to understand that it is a relationship. It's not one way or, or the highway type of thing. Yeah, I think it's definitely bi-directional. And I mean, obviously we can do all we want with the children, right? And train them and teach them. But then we still have this other piece over here too, that they're not, the kids aren't necessarily like in your instance, you know, trying to take you down or question your policies and your procedures and everything. Um, it's It's not necessarily offensive. And so really- you know, and sometimes we have this conversation and I, you know, I work with a lot of interdisciplinary teams and things, and oftentimes it comes down and I will have to say it's, this is called adulting, right? They, this kid is not, you know, they didn't hit you with the water bottle because they were trying to harm you intentionally, right? It's, it's what's going on in the environment. So that's on us as well as adults to really, again, use like the compassion, like Molly was going back to, you know, going back to what Molly was saying and really working with our learners and trying to, you know, 
further establish and refine those questioning. I'm glad you're asking these questions. That's great. Here's why I made that decision. This is why I did what I did, but that's a skill that the adults are going to have to recognize that we also have to, you know, make a little bit of change and be a little bit flexible into. I appreciate you saying that because I've seen this time and again with clinicians who get the, uh, you know, the recalcitrant teenager who's, you know, quote unquote, oppositional and questioning everything and usually doing it with a poor tone and angry countenance. Um, but when I get those kids, I'm like, oh man, I got a bright kid here. He sees more than the adults allowing to see. Right. And so trying to help the adults in his life, whether it be teachers who are frustrated or parents who are angry, like view him as this kid who's got all this opportunity because he's intelligent enough to challenge authority and ask, maybe he's not doing it the right way. We can work on that, but let's not stamp out the, the, the potential for growth. Right. Um, so I appreciate you saying like, it's up to the adults to, to own some of that and be okay with being questioned. And and we should have answers for why we, that's why intentionality is my favorite word. I think oftentimes too. And I, I know I went, I did my doctorate at Western Michigan and there was a lot of conversation about, uh, you know, diagnoses and labels and things like that. And as behavior analysts, we don't necessarily care about that. Um, it's just kind of a classification of a group of, you know, behaviors that are similar across populations. Um, we know that we have the science to target a lot of those things and teach appropriate behaviors. Uh, and in that instance or that example, I, you know, I would say it doesn't, maybe he is oppositional defiant, right? Maybe this is conduct disorder or whatever. That's great. Um, but let's recognize what he's doing and, uh, recognize the strengths and those values for him and then teach him a more appropriate form of, you know, engaging in this behavior to, you know, achieve the same outcome or whatever. Um, and so I, I think, you know, as adults too, we need to do a little bit of a better job teachers, you know, whoever it is of framing those, not in terms of diagnostic symptomology, but mm-hmm. as strengths of our clients and really how we can empower them and take that in terms of like the values in the therapeutic um, direction. You're I not rigorously, but just for <laughs> Um, I want to be mindful of time and respectful of everybody's calendars, uh, but I do want to close out with a, like a question about like the future of the field. And uh, I know you both are in leadership roles in various capacities, um, you know, within the state and licensing and that kind of thing, associations. Right now, as I see it, and this may be a big can of worms we don't have time to go into, but I'd at least like some impressions. We as professionals working all in the behavioral health realm, uh, you know, under the umbrella, so to speak, we don't, we don't talk. Um, sometimes we fight, mm-hmm. uh, but we certainly don't talk. We don't consult. Sometimes we denigrate each other. Sometimes we elevate each other, but, but at bare minimum, we just don't collaborate. How do we, how do we fix this? I, I mean, like magic wand, you know, long-term, whatever, not, not tomorrow or whatever, but, you know, but like, how do, how do we solve this? Uh, more podcasts certainly would help, <laughs> but what do you guys see from your perspective as uh, behavior analysts? I think it's really hard. And I think Bridget has a great role to impact this type of collaboration um, because it's what we teach our clinicians and teaching our clinicians from the very beginning of their careers to collaborate is going to be really helpful. Um, behavior analysts uh, have a history and a bad rap and be our bad rap reputation for being arrogant. And, you know, and everybody does that. Um, like you were saying, uh, fields aren't really communicating well against, with each other, but even within our field, there's a lot of that that goes on. But I am seeing a shift um, in a lot of at least the social media groups that I'm part of within our field where people are starting to talk more about how to interact with each other in different ways that is more appropriate. Um, But so I guess I'm not really answering your question necessarily, but I think it's going to happen at the college level, at the schooling level. And I think it's also going to happen through things like podcasts and webinars and uh, conferences where, you know, younger professionals are going to go to these conferences and see these big names that they admire because of the work they've done interacting with, you know, marriage and family therapists and SLPs and other, other uh, practitioners from different fields and valuing their work and honoring their work too. Dr. Fernoffel's published. She's one of those names, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That many times. Um, (laughs) My list is small. I, I agree. I think, you know, it, 
I agree. It has to happen with our trainees and our supervisees, and we need to embed that and ingrain it early on. But I also, I'm going to go back to, you know, adulting, right? It's on us. And I think um, for individual clinicians, practitioners, those of us, especially in leadership roles to kind of recognize that there, while we, our science is great. We do a lot of great things. Behavior analysts are, we're amazing. We're, we're amazing. Um, right, Molly? Yes, yeah. so <laughs> yep. we, we are. Yes, we are. We are. We have some really wonderful clinicians and, you know, some great outcomes, but I, there are also professions that have strengths and skills in areas that we don't. And I think it's really important for us, step one, to recognize that, recognize where we can uh, collaborate interdisciplinary with them. And there are certain things we can't do, and we need those relationships in order to refer out at times. Mm. And then you're often left with who, well, who do I refer out to? Right. Cause I don't know any marriage and family therapists, or yeah. I don't know a neuropsychologist. And so really taking it upon yourself to kind of get out of your box and professionally collaborate and participate with those other disciplines is really, really important. Uh, and I think that that, you know, needs to be a push as well. Um, not just for behavior analysts, right. Also for the other clinicians. Sure. And so, yeah. and really finding the, the value and the importance of how we can really help one another out. Um, Cause again, you know, we're talking a lot about bi-directional through this entire thing and it's a bi-directional relation there as well. I think it's hard because it takes time and time usually means time either away from work where you're generating revenue based on a fee for service, godforsaken fee for service, decrepit old system uh, basis, uh, or, or you're taking time away from family or hobbies or whatever to, to go do this, you know, like, Hey, we're doing this rising tide floats all boats advocate for the profession thing. It's like, well, if I can't see it and it's not tangibly evidentiary, you know, uh, affecting me in my life, I don't know if I want to do it. Um, and we got to get out of the competitive mindset too. Like, like we're all competing over this, like zero sum quantity of hurt in the community. (laughs) Oh no. If I, if I collaborate with a social worker, they might steal my clients. It's like, no. Or my colleagues might be like, why are you talking to that social worker? What are you doing? You're a behavior analyst. And so the enemy, yeah, they're the enemy. So kind of getting, getting over that, um, as well. And, you know, and I think it goes back to the premises. We could sit here and talk to it till we're blue in the face. Right. But at a certain point, somebody has to step up and just say like, if not me, then who, right? right? So we also have to stop this heavy reliance. And I know Molly and I, we, we experience this in our field in terms of, you know, policy and things like that, really just relying on those five or six people to carry the torch. Like at a yep. certain point, that torch needs to be passed yep. and it needs to be passed again. And at a certain point, and Molly and I have talked about this, then we need to go light things on fire because that's really what needs to happen, right? Like not one person can hold this. It's, it's a participatory process. And so I really think we need to, you know, kind of jump on that bandwagon. You know, and I wonder too, if, if there's not some deeper truth in what you just said there about the, the, the handful of people who are carrying the torch, I wonder if it's just kind of always been that way across all professions, you know, where the vast majority of the people, think about your standard distribution curve, like the vast majority of the people aren't out at the, at the incrementally small or infinitesimally small percentage of leaders. And they're also not out at the end of you know, the other tail of the curve of the people who are doing harm. You know, most of them are just moving along in life. And so maybe it's, it's us, it's we, the leaders who need to align our expectations with reality too, and go, eh, I guess it is me for a few years. And not just this like one, one shot deal where I'm going to inspire a whole bunch of people and light things on fire. And they're going to be like, yeah, I want to go chair the board or run the organization or found something because uh, it's just not not within most people to do that and that's fine and that maybe we just need to learn to embrace that and and carry it forward uh, without without getting frustrated <laughs> yeah that's a good point too yeah well um I, I really appreciate both your time uh, a great deal thank you so much and I know our listening audience probably appreciates it I can't speak for them but I'm sure they like it what this is what I'm doing lately and with a podcast. What is one thing that you would give to our audience to take away or some just major thematic exhortation you might leave the audience? Molly, we'll start with you. Oh, I was hoping you start with Bridge, I'm thinking. Um, that's a big question. I think for everybody, just especially for parents, I would say, I don't know who, who your audience might be, but for hey. clinicians in particular, actually, um, try to get people collecting data in some way on mm. their own behaviors and on the be- on specifically on their own behaviors, not just on the behaviors of others. 
but on their behaviors and maybe also track how it's happening or how it's impacting their environment. And that includes their children, their spouse, their friends. Um, and just watch it. Cause you know, there's a saying like, once you start collecting data and that could be very, like I said, very formal or just in journal format, you're going to change the behavior changes yeah. um, because you're aware of it. Um, and just start with that. If you have something that you want to shift, do it that way. What's an example, uh, like like a concrete example or a handful of concrete examples? What's something that, say, I or you, or we, what can somebody track? What do we want to start with? Um, you can track anything. I mean, a good one is exercise, self-exercise, obviously, right? But um, when it comes to, you know, parenting, I'd say. Um, I, at one point, we had a really difficult time with my oldest waking pleasant in the morning. <laughs> and so um, that was my example earlier. It was a lot of dr dramatics in the morning and it would, you know, I have three, ch three kids. So it always filtered down to the other two. Um, and so we started tracking what we were doing. You know, what was our bedtime routine? Like what was our morning routine? Like, and what, what was our, um, I don't, how did we behave? My husband and I, were we chipper in the morning? Were we sitting on the couch trying to drink our coffee while they were running wild? Um, all of those little things added up and we, we figured out based on talking about it and writing things down, a happy medium that we could have what we needed in the morning. And my, my kids could get what they needed from us and from each other in the morning and everybody can kind of exist and thrive. That's so that's one thing. So it yeah. doesn't necessarily have to be a problem area. It could just be as an experiment, something you want to become more aware of. Yes. Got it. Yes. Or if your spouse is constantly complaining to you about a certain thing, maybe start tracking it. Yep. <laughs> not, not elbowing anyone under the table or anything. Uh, Bridget, what's, what's your uh, giveaway or to the, to the audience? What would you uh, like them to take? I appreciate you saying the data, Molly, because I think that's super important. Um, and I think, you know, as far as, just clinically um, know that we're here, right? We're mm -hmm. here as a profession and um, the vast majority of us are happy to, happy to help and be collaborative with other professions. And so knowing that there, there may be things that you can help us with and maybe things in our uh, bag of expertise that we can help you with, um, feel free to reach out. You can be help, happy to help and I'll be happy to help. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you both. appreciate you. And um We'll just keep moving this thing forward, you know, making Earth better. So on behalf of the Naganodes family and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. <laughs>